0: chapter 8 part 3 of dead love has no chains by mary elizabeth braddon this LibriVox recording is in the public domain chapter 8 part 3 there was a letter lying on the hall table when she went in exactly like the last a conspicuous letter with a big vermilion seal delivered by hand who's your correspondent her father asked sharply as she took up the letter oh it's nothing of importance is it a bill no only a circular she ran upstairs before he could ask any more questions and shut herself in her room. Her frock was laid out on the bed, and Justine would be engaged with Lady Thelliston for the next two hours. She was safe in her seclusion till eleven o'clock, when Daisy was to call for her and they were to go together to the people who were making her trousseau, and who had to be kept up to time. This was the letter she had to read. She who ardently desired to know herself bound to Conrad Harling through life until death, Within less than a fortnight of the day appointed for her wedding, she had to read this letter and consider all that it meant. "'Your letter just to hand is a thunderbolt. I suppose I had no right to expect that you would remain free. And indeed, when we parted, when I left you with an aching heart to fulfill an engagement from which I saw no escape, I told myself that I hoped you would meet with someone better worthy of your love, that you would make a happy marriage, and that all we had been to each other would seem to you no more than the memory of a dream.' Could I think otherwise, in that dark day when I was leaving you, as I thought, for ever to keep faith with the woman to whom I had bound myself before I had ever seen your love-compelling face? But now that there is no barrier to our happiness, now that the one desire of my heart and mind is to call you wife, it seems to me impossible that any other man can stand between us. Remember what you have been to me. And ask yourself if you can refuse to be mine, now that Providence has put it in our power to cancel all that was unfortunate in the past by the most solemn, the most sacred of bonds. Can you, for an instant, contemplate giving yourself to another man while I am here to remind you of my claim, I who am the only man living who has any right over you? What power of choice can you have in such circumstances? Can I believe that you will call another man husband and deny yourself to me, Whose overmastering passion brought shipwreck upon us both, when you were a child in ignorance of evil, a woman only in the power to love? Oh, my divine girl, think of those days, think of all we were to each other, my Hady, so lovely and so innocent! I was a wretch to hazard the sweet enchantment of those hours, a wretch not to fly temptation, not to leave you while you could still remember me without pain. But if I made you unhappy, then I give you a life of devotion and atonement for my sin. Do not try to cheat me. Do not imagine that I will forego my right to make you my wife, without needless delay. In the face of your letter, I shall not rest till you are legally mine. I shall apply for the special license today, and shall leave this hotel and take rooms in your parish. Yours and yours only, till death do us part. H.M. All the more determined phrases were heavily underscored. From the first words to the last, the letter was a menace. She remembered the tyranny of his love in the days when she had loved him. She was then at the age when a girl adores a tyrant. His determined pursuit of her had been the charm that worked to such fatal issues. To be pursued, to be worshipped, it was the schoolgirl's dream of bliss. But now, with this letter in her hand, remembering what he had been, A deadly fear took hold of her. He had been her master then, when she loved him. He was her master now, when she hated him. How could she have hoped that he would be generous, that he would stand out of her way and let her take her own road to happiness? How could she have hoped that pity or honor would seal his lips when he wanted to marry her? Self was his God and his law. She knew that now. "'Recalling details remembered, though not understood in those foolish hours, "'before she had acquired wisdom in the school of misery. "'He would have no mercy. "'What could she do? "'She dared not defy him. "'She had told him that love was dead, and he had ignored that plea. "'He wanted her. "'He would make her his bond slave and would laugh at the power of a rival. "'He would make her marry him. "'There was the sickening dread that froze her.' She saw herself at his mercy. If she persisted in refusing him, he would fight for her with the most odious weapons, would tell her lover all that the cruelest speech could tell of her sin-stained girlhood. She would stand before her pre-chevalier, the man who worshipped her, a lost creature. She had told Lady Mary that Conrad would cleave to her even if he heard her story. The disillusion might go near to break his heart, but he would not forsake her. He would take her, degraded, humiliated, changed utterly from the goddess he had worshipped, and would pardon and pity her. But love and life would be changed. And she told herself that she could not live under the burden of his pity, she could not live with him and be happy, conscious of the change in his feelings. Better, better anything than to be his wife, knowing that she had forfeited his respect, that he was sorry for her, and sorry for himself as her husband— What was she to do? She had no hour in the day that she could call her own, no power to go the length of Chapel Street without accounting for her moments. Her stepmother was too self-absorbed to be formidable, but she had an idea that her father suspected her, that those cold, cruel eyes followed and watched her. He had looked at her keenly when he questioned her about that dreadful letter. So obviously not a tradesman's circular. She was like a hunted stag at bay. THE CRY OF THE PACK GAINING ON HER. SHE HAD NO TIME TO THINK, NO TIME TO MAP OUT HER COURSE. AN IMPERATIVE MESSAGE HAD COME FROM HER FATHER BEFORE SHE HAD TAKEN OFF HER RIDING CLOTHES. HE WAS AT BREAKFAST AND WANTED TO SEE HER. IT WAS HER DAILY TASK TO POUR OUT HIS COFFEE AND TO PRETEND THEY WERE ON EXCELLENT TERMS, A MODEL FATHER AND DAUGHTER. HE WAS A MAN WHO LOVED SHAMS. AT 11 DAISY CAME FOR HER IN LADY MARY'S VICTORIA and she was driven to Dover Street to spend a weary hour trying on garments of every description—her wedding dress, her clothes for Italy, and her clothes for Egypt. Conrad was pacing the street, waiting for them to come out and join him, and then they were to go and walk in the park by the sumptuous flower-beds, while the driving people and the riding people and the walking people went by them like figures in a cinematograph. To Irene, on that miserable day, nothing in the world seemed real except her own despair. A few yards from the Stanhope gate, she saw Henry Middlemore standing with his back to the railings watching them. She looked straight before her, and went on talking to Daisy, pretending not to see him. "'That man haunts us,' Conrad said when they had passed. "'What man?' "'The owner of Horoscope. Didn't you see him?' "'No.' She managed to post a letter to Middlemore that afternoon, hiding it between other letters and dropping it into a pillar-box before Conrad's eyes as they walked through Esher, where the Mercedes had carried them to take tea in an inn garden, Daisy and Professor Wilmer for their companions, the professor attaching himself to Daisy in a dull, persistent way, like a learned barnacle. He was never weary of expounding his views about the universe for her edification, and he had told her incidentally that he would like to marry her. "'Conrad was to dine in Chapel Street and to meet his betrothed at two dances. "'Her letter to Middlemore was brief. "'If you will walk in the park by the flower-beds between Stanhope and Grosvenor Gate "'to-morrow morning at half-past six, I will try to join you for a quarter of an hour. "'There is no use in any more letter-writing.' "'That was all. No signature, no address. "'Such an appointment was a desperate thing. "'But she thought it would be safe at that early hour.' No servant would come downstairs before seven, and she would only have to unbolt the street door and go out. Her father came down at eight for his morning ride. She could be back at the house at quarter-past seven in time to put on her habit. The servants could do no more than wonder. They might think she had gone out for an early walk with her fiancé. The second and more delightful of the two dances did not begin to languish till after three o'clock, when Lady Thelliston declared herself absolutely worn out a fact confirmed by the damaged state of her complexion, and insisted on carrying off her stepdaughter, in spite of Conrad's petition for one more extra. Irene had been paramount in beauty, crowned with the factitious interest of approaching nuptials, all other girls curious about her, and most of them inclined to depreciate her charms, and to consider Mr. Harding much too good for her. No doubt she was very pretty in a certain style of her own, rather like Lady Hamilton in Romney's pictures. And, well, everybody knew what kind of person his famous sitter was. Quite a Romney beauty. And she had dropped from the skies last June. She had no connections about the court. The king had asked who she was in a tone that implied a great deal. She had not even been presented on this side of the Irish Channel. She was going to be after her marriage. The father was a soldier, but no one had heard of him till that West African affair the other day. The mother, or stepmother, was too odious for words. In point of fact, they had no connections whatever that anybody knew of. They were quite new people, and they were living in a squeezy little house in Chapel Street, quite impossible for entertaining. In such phrases did the faded and partnerless express their poor opinion of Irene and her people. The sky was sunless and gray, and there was a chilliness in the air when Irene stole out of the house soon after six o'clock to keep her appointment with Middlemore. Her endeavor to sleep in the daylight and amidst the sound of awakening birds and early traffic had been vain. Two and a half hours of restlessness had made her more tired than when she left the dance, and she had that strange, vague feeling of not being more than half alive which comes from sleepless nights and the strain of hidden trouble. From Saturday afternoon till Tuesday morning, her brain had been working at an eighty horsepower, not an hour's natural sleep, not a minute's respite from torturing thoughts in her waking hours, not even when she was waltzing with her lover in the flower-scented ballroom, gliding round in an elysium of music and light, his strong arm encircling her, his kind eyes watching her face with ineffable love. No, there had been no pause in the torment of the laboring brain. What was she to do? Was there any hope, any way of escape from the doom she loathed, to part from the man she loved, to give herself to the man she hated? Now, in the chill grey morning, past the awakening flowers, she was hurrying to meet the hated lover, to fight her last battle for freedom, and make her last appeal to the tyrant. The cool air revived her, and that dreamlike feeling of not being quite conscious of existence, which amounted almost to the loss of identity, "'left her in the freshness of the morning. "'It was not a quarter past six when she went into the park, "'but Middlemore was there before her a few yards from Grosvenor Gate. "'She saw the tall figure, broad and stalwart, "'coming towards her with a swinging step on the solitary path. "'There was no one else within sight. "'They had the park to themselves. "'He almost ran to meet her, and before she could speak "'he was holding her in his arms, and his kisses were on her face.' THE KISSES OF LOVE THAT WILL NOT BE DENIED. SHE GAVE A CRY OF DESPAIR AND STRUGGLED TO ESCAPE, BUT THE STRONG ARMS HELD HER CLOSE. SHE FELT LIKE SOME WILD THING THAT HAD FALLEN INTO A TRAP. MY ANGEL, HOW SWEET OF YOU TO COME, HE SAID, WITH HIS LIPS ON HER FACE. SHE WENT ON STRUGGLING IMPOTENTLY. HER CHEEKS THAT HAD BEEN WHITE WHEN SHE MET HIM WERE FLAMING WITH ANGRY FIRE. LET ME GO, SHE GASPED. YOU DON'T KNOW HOW I HATE YOU. No, no, if you hated me you would not have come. No, no, it is love that brings my hady to my arms. He saw people coming, a sauntering policeman, a groom exercising a horse, and released her from that fierce embrace and slipped his arm through hers, and led her across the road to the turf under the trees where they might walk unseen. She was trembling violently, and the weakness of strained nerves made her helpless. Let me sit down or I shall faint, she said and he took her to a bench and seated her by his side with his arm round her. He took off her hat and made her rest her head against his shoulder, and held her as a man holds a woman who is his own. There was a rough tenderness in all he did, a tenderness that had been enchanting in the old days, when the glamour of unknown love held her spell-bound and at his mercy. "'I came to tell you that I mean to marry Conrad Harling,' she said, when she could command her voice. "'Not while I live, not while I live,' You are my wife in the sight of God. You must wait till you are my widow if you want to marry any other man. No, I am not your wife. I owe you nothing. You have not the shadow of a right over me. You left me to my misery, to my shame. She burst into tears and hid her face in her hands, sobbing violently. The loosely rolled-up hair fell over her neck and shoulders. Middlemore sat for a minute in deep thought. Then, with extreme tenderness, with hands that caressed the lovely tresses, he bound them into a knot and gathered up the scattered combs and made her head look neat again. "'You spoke of shame,' he said in a low voice. "'What shame could there be, except in my sweet girl's tender conscience?' "'There was shame, bitter shame, a year of shame. "'It was a year after you forsook me, "'before I could go into the light of day without shrinking from every eye.' "'hating my fellow creatures. "'A year before I left my sick-bed. "'A wreck! "'Ah, if you had seen me then, "'you would not have wanted me. "'Such a wasted, sickly creature "'would have no attraction for you.' "'He hardly heard what she said. "'He took her to his breast again "'with irresistible force. "'My beloved girl, I never dreamt. "'I never for a moment contemplated. "'Oh, what a brute I was!' "'But you told me nothing. "'You never hinted at your trouble. "'How could I think that you would have kept such a secret? "'Our child! "'Oh, how I shall adore! "'How I shall worship my Hades child, son or daughter! "'How divine a gift! "'Where, where have you hidden our child?' "'In the grave,' she answered. "'He did not live through the day. "'My angel, my suffering angel!' But we have life before us, and we are going to be happy. And could you think of marrying another man, you, the mother of my son? It was a shameful thought. There was a change in his accent as he spoke those words, a change to absolute severity. It was a shameful thought. That was this man's opinion. And how about the other man whom she adored, her preux chevalier, If she could defy Middlemore and marry Conrad Harning, might not the day come when he would tell her that it was a shameful thought, a shameful act that had given her to his arms? Would love excuse her? Would beauty win his pardon, beauty disfigured by sin? No, she could not marry Conrad. She could not face the possibility of his anger, his grief, his killing contempt. Perhaps she had known from the moment when Henry Middlemore took her in his arms that the battle was lost. She had come into the cool gray morning, braced with angry resolution, prepared to fight a desperate battle, determined to win. But he had given her no chance of fighting. She was his prey. He had taken possession of her. He had held it unquestionable that she must be his. The old tyranny subjugated her. Something there might be, perhaps, of the old magnetism, when the lightest touch of that strong hand, trembling as it stirred the lilies upon her breast, had thrilled her with girlhood's unquestioning love. She knew that the battle was lost. After her passion of sobs, she sat looking straight before her, with tearless eyes, conquered, despairing. "'I suppose you would be sorry if I were to kill myself,' she said at last in a low, toneless voice. No, no, you will not kill yourself. You bore that year of martyrdom, my poor dove. Why should you want to die now when you have a happy life before you? You think you are in love with this harling fellow? But that's Skittles. He is younger than I am, altogether more attractive, I dare say. But I am the man you loved when first your heart knew what love meant. I am the man you will love till your dying day. She made no fight. She sat mute and defeated. "'and let him dictate to her. "'We can be married at nine o'clock "'to-morrow morning. "'You have only to slip out of your house "'at half-past eight. "'I shall be in the street watching for you. "'Don't trouble about bag or baggage. "'I will get all you can want for a few weeks, "'and after that, no doubt, "'your people will send your things. "'They may make a fuss at first, "'but when they find you have married a man "'of good means, they'll come round like a shot.' "'The clock struck seven. "'I must go home.' "'she said, putting on her hat. "'She did not look at him or answer him. "'She neither assented nor refused. "'She made no protest except for a long, agonized sigh. "'She was beaten. "'He walked with her till they were within sight "'of the flowery balconies, holding her arm all the way. "'She felt his love sustaining her, dominating her as in the past. "'She knew that it was real love of its kind, "'violent, tyrannical, exacting, but real,' She knew that he was ready to fight for her, to do wild and desperate things rather than let her go. A housemaid opened the door and stared at her in blank surprise. "'I have been walking in the park to cure my headache,' she explained. "'Tell Clarkson to let the groom know that my horse won't be wanted, and he can tell Sir Michael that I am not going to ride this morning.' She flung herself upon the bed. Beaten. Beaten. She felt as if the beating had been not only moral but physical.' Heart and limbs were aching. She wanted to lie upon the ground, face downwards and never get up again. Middlemore had trodden her into the dust. She did not leave her room that day. She refused to see Conrad. She sent him a line in pencil to tell him she was tired to death after the ball and must take a day's rest. He rushed off to an eminent nerve doctor who lived within a stone's throw, and gave himself no peace till that authority had seen the beloved patient, and could assure him that there was nothing seriously amiss, only nervous prostration requiring seclusion and repose. An affair of a day or two. That was all. But for Conrad the world was empty. He hardly knew how to get through the day. His only relief was in talking to Daisy about the wedding, asking trivial questions about the frocks, about the bridesmaids, about the bride's luggage. "'Shall we go and look at her trunks?' he asked, as if proposing a treat, and he straightway carried the submissive daisy to the trunk-makers, where he gloated over the great dress-box, the hat-boxes and bags, the cabin-trunk for the voyage to Alexandria. They were to be finished off in a hurry with her initials I.H., and a four-leaved shamrock by way of badges on sides and lid. "'Lady Thelliston is to find her a good maid,' said Conrad." The poor darling has had only a half-share in her stepmother's slavery up to now. "'Judging by Lady Thelliston's complexion, it would be more like a sixteenth, said Daisy. Conrad rode with the general next morning. Irene was under the doctor's orders to keep her room. "'She has been doing too much,' Sir Michael said. "'Girls are simply insatiable. My poor wife is worn out. I heard them come in on Monday night. I should say Tuesday morning a few minutes to four. "'Conrad talked of Irene all the time. "'Would Sir Michael send her Arab to Cranford, "'where the stud-groom would take particular care of him, "'in a loose box with his shoes off till the spring, "'when they came home from Egypt? "'She should have her Arabs there, "'and revel in the desert rides, the delicious mornings, "'the charm and wonder of that land of strange gods. "'Curious to think how we humdrum English "'have taken possession of it after all these centuries,' he said, "'and how we carry all our paltry modern luxuries.' "'our fine clothes and snobbism to the land that was old "'when Herodotus wrote about it. "'He breakfasted with his mother and Daisy. "'He was restless and yet dull, "'as if that severance of twenty-four hours "'had been too much for his nerves. "'Lady Mary watched him anxiously. "'She felt as if there were thunder in the air. "'She had noted the change in Irene's manner on Sunday. "'And now the girl's nervous breakdown puzzled her, "'while the hurrying on of the wedding was a blow.' It killed the remnant of hope, that slowly dwindling hope she had cherished from the beginning of Conrad's engagement, the hope that something would happen and that her son would be saved from that unholy union. She had submitted to the inevitable. She had been tolerant, and had put on a show of kindness to her intercourse with Irene. But the memory of that night on board the Electra, the shock of the girl's confession, had never been out of her mind since the hour she knew this girl was to be her son's wife. "'Conrad had called in Chapel Street before breakfast, "'carrying a tribute of hothouse flowers for Irene "'with an eight-page letter written after midnight. "'He told his mother of this visit while they were at breakfast. "'She won't leave her room till the doctor has seen her,' he said. "'But I know she'd like to see you, Daisy, if you will go and look her up. "'And you want me to tell you how she looks and what she says. "'If she is quite a wreck after being a day under the weather, "'if she has cried herself blind at being parted from you,' Daisy said. Laughing at him, full of kindness, resigned to this certainty that he was to pass out of her life altogether in a few days. Tell her I shall call before lunch to hear what the doctor has said, and if I may take her into the country in the afternoon. We might go to Brighton and give her a breath of sea air and be back by nine o'clock for dinner. He went off to his den at the back of the house, carrying the Times with him, and totally incapable of reading it. They had sat at breakfast longer than usual and it was ten o'clock when Lady Mary went to her morning-room. "'You can go to Chapel Street before you come for my letters,' she told Daisy. "'There is nothing very important this morning,' whereupon Daisy went off meekly to put on her hat and to go and worship at the shrine of the strange goddess. She passed the Thelliston's footman on the way, walking towards Hertford Street, and the butler who opened the door had a certain discomposure in his looks. "'Miss Thelliston was not at home.' "'Then she is better, I hope.' "'said Daisy, if she has really gone out.' "'Yes,' the man assured her. "'Miss Thelliston had gone out early "'a few minutes after Sir Michael started for his ride.' "'Daisy retraced her steps, wondering greatly. "'Conrad came out of his den and met her in the hall. "'Back already? "'They would not let you see her?' he asked excitedly. "'She was not at home.' "'Not at home? "'Nonsense!' "'The butler said so.' "'He snatched up his hat and hurried out of the house.' A letter had been taken to Lady Mary five minutes before. A letter carried by the footman Daisy had met on her way to Chapel Street. Tuesday night. You have won, Lady Mary. I am beaten in my battle for life and love, but not by you. Fate has been too cruel. The man you know of has come back to me, free to make me his wife, and he has compelled me to marry him. There is no help for me. I have fought hard, but he has conquered me. WE ARE TO BE MARRIED EARLY TOMORROW MORNING. WE ARE TO LEAVE ENGLAND TOMORROW NIGHT. I GO TO HIM WITH A BROKEN HEART. I CAN NEVER LOVE HIM, NEVER RESPECT HIM, NEVER HOPE FOR HAPPINESS WITH HIM, REMEMBERING WHAT CONRAD HAS BEEN TO ME, MY NOBLE LOVER, MY KING OF MEN. AH, YOU CAN NEVER KNOW HOW I HAVE LOVED YOUR SON, OR HOW HAPPY I COULD HAVE MADE HIM, WITH AN ADORING WIFE'S DEVOTION, OBEDIENCE, UNCHANGING FIDELITY IF FATE HAD LET ME. I have had to succumb. If I were to persist in refusing Henry Middlemore, some dreadful thing would happen. It is best that I should be the sacrifice. I deserve nothing better. I thought that he had gone out of my life forever, that he was no more to me than the memory of a bad dream. But I met him at Sandown on Saturday, and from that hour I have had no peace. You tried to shame me into giving up your son, and you failed. Henry Middlemore has shamed me into marrying him. AND YOUR SON HAS ESCAPED. WILL YOU BREAK THIS NEWS TO HIM, AND BE MERCIFUL TO ME, AND KEEP THE SECRET WHICH YOU SWORE NEVER TO BETRAY ON YOUR CRUCIFIX? I DO NOT THINK YOU COULD EVER LOOK UPON THAT SACRED IMAGE WITHOUT DREAD IF YOU WERE TO BREAK THAT OATH. NEVER LET HIM KNOW OF THAT DARK STAIN UPON MY LIFE. NEVER LET HIM KNOW THAT HE HAS BEEN TWICE THE DUPE OF A PRETTY FACE. BUT INDEED, I HOPE AT MY WORST I AM BETTER THAN THE innkeeper's DAUGHTER for at least I have loved him fondly and disinterestedly, and I would have married him had he been a beggar, and would have been proud to call him husband. Have pity upon me now, Lady Mary, as you had that night on the Electra, for I am in as deep a pit of shame and sorrow. Irene Thalliston Lady Mary sat staring into vacancy with the girl's open letter on the table before her. He had escaped, The union she had dreaded and loathed, the union of honor with dishonor, was not to be. He had escaped this danger. But could she dare to be glad, while that other and even worse peril threatened him? The peril of a mind overthrown by a sudden overwhelming grief? She knew how he loved this girl. She had seen the self-surrender, the total absorption of his whole being in that young love. She knew that from the night of the ball, from the hour when he had held the lovely girl in his arms, from their first waltz, from their first interchange of trivial talk, sitting among the palms and flowers in the half-light of a winter garden, he had existed only to adore her. Irene had become his world, and there was nothing else worth living for. Restless, silent, preoccupied in her absence, he woke to radiant life when she appeared. The light-stereotyped amusements of each day had become Elysian joys only to be with her had made the dull earth fairyland. And now he was to be told that his goddess had been stolen from him, that the creature who was so soon to have been his own, his own for life, had been taken from him for ever. Would it mend matters to tell him that she was worthless, that to marry her would have been a calamity? No. The revelation would only give a sharper edge to his grief, the agony of knowing that he had been fooled for the second time in his life, HE BURST INTO THE ROOM WHILE LADY MARY SAT LOOKING AT THE TREETOPS AND THE BLUE SUMMER SKY WITH UNSEEING EYES. MOTHER, A LETTER HAS BEEN BROUGHT TO YOU, IRENE'S LETTER. WHAT DOES IT MEAN? SHE IS GONE, NO ONE KNOWS WHERE. IT'S MADDENING. GIVE ME HER LETTER. HE WOULD HAVE SNATCHED THE OPEN LETTER FROM UNDER HIS MOTHER'S HAND, BUT SHE SPREAD HER HAND OVER IT, HOLDING IT ON THE TABLE. NO, NO, YOU ARE NOT TO READ HER LETTER. A despatch-box stood open on the table in front of her. She threw the letter into it and put down the lid which fastened with a spring lock. Then, turning to her son, she put her arms round his neck and drew his face down against her own. "'My dearest son, be brave. Try to bear the heaviest blow you have ever had. If you could know how I love you, how my life is bound up in you, I think you would be brave for my sake.' "'Where has she gone? Why?' WHY? He was white to the lips, and his voice was hoarse and dull. And then, to his mother's horror, he burst suddenly into a laugh. She was like the publican's daughter, I suppose. There is someone she liked better, some great coarse brute who knew how to master her. He remembered the man at Sandown, the man who had talked to Irene at the corner of Stanhope Street on Sunday, the man he had seen leaning against the park rails on Monday morning. "'She has gone off with that fellow. "'That's what's the matter. "'Can't you speak?' he cried furiously. "'She was married early this morning to Mr. Middlemore. "'It is not a happy marriage, Conrad. "'You have more reason to pity her than to blame her.' "'Pity her, yes, I must pity her. "'Pity her for breaking my heart, "'for making me hate the world I live in and all humankind. "'Except you. "'I'll make that one exception, Mother.' "'though you did me the biggest wrong you could do "'when you brought me into this vile world. "'This world of lovely faces and black hearts. "'Black, black as Erebus. "'Oh, how I loved her. "'How I trusted in her love. "'And she was to make me happy. "'That was the burden of her song. "'I mean to make you happy. "'And she let me fix our wedding day, last Sunday. "'She melted into my arms.' and sighed and said it could not be too soon. At that moment she was as utterly mine as wedded wife ever was, mine by the beating of her heart, by the lips that trembled as I kissed them. And she has married that coarse brute, a creature of thews and sinews, a face flushed with high living. Do you say that they are married, now, now, as we stand here? They were married early this morning, and they are to leave England to-night. Conrad, my idolized son, only tell me that you will show yourself a strong man, strong in moral force. You mean that I will grin and bear it, take my licking a little better than I did before? Don't be frightened, mother. I am not going back to Roehampton. She has killed the gladness of my life, but I won't let her kill mind and memory, if I can help it. I won't bring trouble upon you again, if I can help it. He went out of the room after these words, and Lady Mary did not follow him. She must let him fight his own battle. He had taken the blow a little better than she had hoped, but his ghastly pallor and the strained look in his eyes had appalled her. The warning of the doctors was ever present in her mind. Don't let him be disappointed a second time. The disappointment had come, by no act of hers, and he had to bear the blow and live through the agony of it as best he could. She knew that she could do nothing to help him. The maternal heart might ache for him, but a mother's affection could not heal the wounds a fatal love had made. All attempts at consolation would be but a repetition of phrases that would fall upon the sensitive brain like the measured water-drops in the torture-chamber. End of Chapter 8